You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. Our Old Testament reading is from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then for our New Testament reading, we turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, 1 to 17. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. I preached to you this morning from the word of our God as we find it in Revelation chapter 2, the verses 18 to the end of that chapter, to verse 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any burden or any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, imagine the church mail arrives tomorrow, and among the mail, there is a letter addressed to the angel of the church of Langley. I'm not sure who that would be, but upon opening it, we discover that it is a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the Church. Now, that would be a a bit of a surprise, right? It would immediately make us curious, what does he say, and what does he write about us? And no doubt it would be curiosity mixed with a good dose of of apprehension. How do we fare? Is it good? Is it bad? Or is it somewhere in between? Well, beloved, rest easy. I do not think that tomorrow there will be a letter from our Savior in our mailbox. 
And why not, if you ask? Well, because we already have seven letters from him. We have come to chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. And there you can find seven letters written to the churches. And now it is true that originally these were letters written to a specific church, whether it be the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, or Pergamon, or elsewhere. It's also true that originally these letters were written to first century churches and thus are very old. But nevertheless, there is no good and valid reason to limit these seven letters only to those original seven churches then. Because you see, there is a sense in which through the power of the Holy Spirit, these letters are still speaking. They still speak to the churches of Jesus Christ around the world. And they ask the churches of Jesus Christ everywhere to examine themselves and to ask themselves about their spiritual condition and state of affairs. They challenge us, as it were, to look at ourselves as much as possible from the angle of Jesus Christ, the King of the Church. And so, beloved, let us turn together to our text of this morning, not with a sense of smugness, because this is about them and not us. No, let us use this letter as a means to test ourselves here in the church at Langley too. I preach to you Christ's letter to the church at Thyatira. We'll see it includes, a, first of all, a stunning introduction, a serious repudiation, and a soaring prediction. Well, beloved, I had to make a choice, and so from chapter 2, I decided to preach to you this morning, or otherwise, actually last Sunday morning, but we were somewhat postponed, about the Lord's message to the church at Thyatira. You realize I could just as well have picked another letter, but I chose this one partly because it's addressed to the smallest city in which there was also, it appears, the smallest of the seven churches. And then it's interesting that the smallest church, as far as we know, receives the longest letter. But of course, it's not only or not the only church to receive one. As I mentioned already, together there are seven letters. And there are seven letters, some say, because, well, seven is a very symbolic number pointing to completeness and, and fullness, but... I don't think we need to go there. I think the answer is more obvious than that. There are seven letters because there happen to be seven churches located on this somewhat circular route in Asia Minor. And if you look at the map, which is in your liturgy sheet, you can draw, as it were, a bit of a circle. It's not much of a circle, admittedly, but you go from Ephesus north to Smyrna, from Smyrna north to Pergamon, and then you go east to Thyatira, and then south to Sardis, Philadelphia, further east to Laodicea, and then back west to Ephesus. Somewhat circular, but not 
quite. But notice the church at Thyatira is the fourth church on this route, the fourth church to receive a letter from our Savior. So what does it say? Well, notice it begins with a rather stunning introduction. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, on first hearing those words, they should strike all of us as somewhat familiar. We've heard them before, as a matter of fact. We heard them in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. They, they represent a part of that awesome picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, a picture that's composed of many details, and among those details there is this blazing fire and these feet like bronze. And indeed, beloved, a careful look at all of these letters indicates that each one of them begins with some aspect of the Son of Man found in chapter 1. His words to Ephesus mention the seven stars in his right hand. To Smyrna, he presents himself as the first and last. To Pergamon, as the one who has that strange, sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And then to Thyatira, he presents himself as the one who has blazing eyes and bronze feet. And why he does so, we shall see in a moment. In any case, beloved, after his introductory word, the Lord Jesus Christ begins with his assessment of that particular local church. And notice that it always is an assessment that begins with the same phrase, the same expression, I know. It underlines the fact that Christ knows his churches. He knew her then. He knew her intimately. He knew her through and through. And you can be sure that the same thing applies just as much to us today. Our Savior knew the church at Thyatira, and he knows the church as at Langley just as well. Just as intimately. And as a matter of fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows us so well because he can see everything. Those blazing eyes are the eyes of penetration before which nothing is hidden and no one can conceal himself. And so what does Christ see in Thyatira? Well, there are, first of all, a number of exemplary things. The Nivelis five, deeds, love, faith, service, and perseverance. Other translation lists four things, love, faith, service, and patient endurance. Christ himself says the first thing that he sees when he looks at Thyatira is love. That was something he didn't see a lot of in Ephesus. But he sees a lot of it in Thyatira. And the second thing that Christ sees in Thyatira is faith. That was somewhat lacking in Pergamon, but not here. The third thing he sees is service. And that was a quality we shall see was lacking in Laodicea. And the fourth thing that Christ sees is perseverance. That was a problem in Sardis, but not in this place. 
And so you can say, Christ Jesus sees a lot of good stuff in Thyatira. And he even adds these words, you are doing more than you did at first. You see, there's been progress here. There's growth. There's development in this church. They're not standing still. They're not backsliding either. No, they're moving steadily forward. Yes, and those things are good to see. Indeed, in light of all of this, all the churches then and and all the churches of Jesus Christ even today do well to ask themselves the question, how is it with our love, faith, service, and perseverance? Do we possess these qualities? Are we working with these qualities? Are we progressing in them? Can that be said of us as well here in Langley? You know, the Apostle Paul once wrote to the church in Thessalonica, your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. That was great. And beloved, may that also be something that is said of us. That our love is increasing. That we're always growing. Always maturing. Always maturing in Christ Jesus and in his service. And so there are compliments for Thyatira. But there are also some other things, some rather disturbing things. And in a way, all the disturbing things in Thyatira center around a woman named Jezebel. I rather doubt that that was her real name. None of you would call your daughters Jezebel. And I don't think that anybody in the church at Thyatira would call themselves Jezebel either. And why not? Well, it doesn't sound bad. even has a certain ring to it, but... Nevertheless, we all avoid it like the plague. And we do so because the name Jezebel is associated with someone whom we consider to be absolutely disgusting and repulsive and beyond the pale. Just as we wouldn't call our sons Hitler or Adolf, we wouldn't call our daughters Jezebel. And the reason for that Well, as you may know, it goes back to the Old Testament. Jezebel, as most of you realize, was a queen in Israel and the wife of King Ahab. And together, Ahab and Jezebel managed to do what people do today in various countries, and that is ruin them and lead a nation into the idolatry of Baal. And of the two of them, there is no doubt that Jezebel was the ringleader and the more assertive one. You know, there were times when King Ahab had his doubts, when he expressed remorse, when he seemed to have a bit of a conscience. But no sooner did he begin to express reservations, and there was Jezebel to set him straight, to mock him, to give him a backbone to take matters into our own evil hands. 
In terms of her background, Jezebel was no Israelite. She was a Sidonian, a daughter of King Esbaal of Sidon. And she became a queen in Israel through her marriage to Ahab, yes. And once she arrived, she brought with her her foreign gods and foreign priests. And she built her temples all through the land. And at the same time, she killed all the true prophets of the Lord and did what she could to undermine the worship of the Lord. In every respect, Jezebel was an enemy of the Lord and of his people. Well, now the same could be said of this Jezebel in Thyatira. Who she is, as I mentioned, we do not know. As I mentioned as well, this was most likely not her real name. This is the name that Christ gives to her. By the way, there are some scholars who think that this was the wife of the local minister, but I think that's a bit conjectural. I would say that Thyatira has its own version of the ancient Jezebel. And so what is she up to? Well, first of all, she wants to be known as a prophetess. She wants to be in the line of Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, etc. And secondly, she teaches something as a prophetess, something that has dire results. And what kind of results? Well, look at verse 20. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. How did she do that? What in the world was she teaching? Well, most likely, beloved, this had everything to do with the trade guilds in the city of Thyatira. Thyatira wasn't large, it wasn't rich, it wasn't a prominent city, but it was a city filled with all kinds of occupations. Tanners, cobblers, weavers, dyers of wool, potters, metal workers. Some of you may remember the name of Lydia mentioned in Acts 16 as a dealer of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. So commerce is very much the thing in Thyatira. But yet in the ancient world, along with these trades, there were trade guilds as well, or ancient unions. And indeed, the whole closed shop idea, as we have it today, came from those days in that you couldn't work in your trade unless you were a member of a local guild. Guild membership was mandatory. But guild membership was also idolatrous. For you see, as a tradesman and as a guild member, you had to attend their local meetings, and those meetings usually took place in the local temple. And what happened at those meetings? Well, a little business was conducted, but so were a lot of other things. Parties were held. Lots of parties. Gross parties filled with food and women. And the food that was served there was first sacrificed to the idol gods and thus became idol food. And the women who served at these meetings 
were really nothing more than holy hookers. They served idle foods and they served themselves on a platter. And so what were these guild meetings all about? They were places for orgies, for gluttony, for fornication. Now, in such a situation, the calling of a Christian should be crystal clear. Believers need to abstain from such food, and they need to make a wide detour around such women. That would be the proper biblical response. But then along came this woman Jezebel, and just like the Jezebel of the Old Testament, she urged God's people to look the other way, to participate, to go along with the world. As a prophetess, she even insisted and claimed that she was speaking on behalf of God. Oh, and then no doubt some of the church members were kind of relieved. Relieved to hear her say these things and to give these guild meetings the green light. After all, how else are you going to practice your trade and make a living? And in addition, if you don't go to these places and if you don't take part in these meals, you are going to cut yourself off from other people and your business will dry up and you'll be a social outcast in no time at all. So some people really like this teaching. It suited them just fine. It made it possible to be a Christian and to carry on business as usual. Thank you, Jezebel. But notice, beloved, that's not the reaction of Jesus Christ. With his blazing eyes, he sees what this woman is doing in this local church. And he is furious. He calls on her to repent of her sins. And if she will not, he will cast her on a bed, not of sex, but of suffering. And she, he says her followers will suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. And indeed, he even adds, I will strike her children dead. That's coming from the mouth, believe it or not, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I will strike her children dead, her followers, her compatriots, her allies. Yes, and he can do this. He can do this because he has feet like burnished bronze. I might add, for the longest time, commentators kind of glossed over those words and generalized them. But today, as a result of various archaeological discoveries, we know that there was a guild of bronze workers in Thyatira who were famous throughout the entire region. And they made a special kind of bronze called burnished bronze. And and the key to making it was one of the most closely guarded secrets in the entire city. 
But notice, Jesus Christ knows the secret. His feet are made of exactly the same kind of secret bronze. And so not only do his eyes see their secrets, but at the same time you can be sure that his feet of bronze are able to stomp them to pieces. And hence it's time for the church members in Thyatira to make a decision. Will they continue to follow the teachings of Jezebel and and dabble in Satan's so-called deep secrets, whatever they were, and we still haven't figured that one out? Or will they repent of their life of compromise, tolerance, and capitulation? Thankfully, they have not all swallowed her teaching. Notice our Savior speaks to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching. And he tells them to persevere, only hold on to what you have until I come. They're to hang on to their holiness, their distinctiveness. They're to remember him who bought them, forgave them, saved them, died for them, rules over them, is coming back for them. They have to persevere, hang tight until he comes. And beloved, the same goes for us. The matter that so concerns Christ our Lord then is a matter that still concerns Christ our Lord today. And it's a matter that challenges us still to ask ourselves, what kind of lives are we living today? Are they lives of compromise or holiness? Are they lives of capitulation or distinctiveness? Are they lives that are shaped, molded, formed, and true to the word of God? Are we persevering? Like that remnant in Thyatira. Or do we more and more live as the world lives? Is there nothing that any longer sets us apart? Is there anything in our speech, our dress, our conduct, our demeanor, our shopping and what have you that makes us different? Are we persevering? Or are we succumbing? You see, also today, the danger is great that the church succumbs to the message of Jezebel and her followers. What's so wrong with sex before marriage or outside of marriage? What's so wrong with turning life into a non-stop party of booze, drugs, and women? What's the matter in taking over more and more of the slick business practices of the world? Beloved, this letter confronts us with the question of how different are we? How discerning are we? How committed are we 
to a holy God, a holy Savior, and a holy life. If we're not, then this text has bad news for us. But on the other hand, if we are, then this text has some glorious incentives and promises for us. Notice the first incentive that Christ mentions to persevere to the end is connected to Psalm 2, and it's a promise that's all about ruling and reigning. Jesus says to the faithful then and now, to him who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He'll dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. You know, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Paul asks the rhetorical question, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So together then Christ is promising to his saints in Thyatira and to his saints today, That holiness leads to dominion, to rulership. And of course, I realize at the present time, it doesn't look like it. Right now, holiness and distinctiveness often lead to hardship, estrangement, criticism, isolation, loneliness, and suffering. And they certainly did that in Thyatira. But you know, a better day is coming. A day of glory. A day of vindication. A day of reigning and ruling with the King of kings and Lord of lords. The ruled will become the rulers. The victims will become, Christ says, the victors. And not only that, Not only is there a promise of rulership, there's also here a promise of brilliance, a brilliant line. Notice Christ says, I will also give him the morning star. And what that really means is that Christ says to those who persevere, I'll not only give rulership, but I'll also give myself. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, Christ identifies himself as the morning star. You know, many believers in Thyatira and elsewhere live in the dark places of this world. Places filled not only with immorality and idolatry, but poverty and suffering and sickness, and persecution. They live in the darkness. But Christ says a day is coming when you'll all live in the light, in the light of the Son of God, in my morning light, and you'll shine like stars in the universe. So not only will the weak become strong, not only will the insignificant become glorious, 
that the children of God will experience the glorious blessings of their Savior. And so then, beloved, do you have ears? Well then, he who has an ear, also here today, let him listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.